something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. you give your heart to. So, we're in week five today of a series uh, on the book of Ephesians, on Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And in the last four weeks, we've dug into Ephesians 1 and 2. And in Ephesians 1, Paul begins a prayer um, around verse 13 or 14 in Ephesians 1. He begins a prayer for the believers, you know, it's a critical thing we're talking about, for the believers in Ephesus, <clears throat> he starts his prayer. And then a rabbit or a squirrel or something must have run by because Paul veers off of that prayer for about a chapter and a half, almost two chapters, and, he get, and then he picks it back up in the middle of Ephesians 3. That's where I want us to land today. He talks, uh, he begins his prayer, and then he goes out on a, on a it's just the way Paul writes. He just, it's stuff's just flooding his mind. But he jumps back into that prayer in about <clears throat> verse 14 of chapter 3. And I want us to focus today on uh, really 16 through 19, but, but start and begin kind of in, in verse 14. Now, before we do that, I want to give us, give y'all sort of a high-level summary of what went on in chapters 1 and 2. And I want us all to begin, at least to begin to see and feel the, the, the thoughts that God has for us as a believer. That's what chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about. As a, as a backdrop to that, God is immutable. That's one of his characteristics. Immutability, it means that he doesn't change. He's the same as he has ever been and, and ever will be. If we back up about eight, seven, 800 years uh, before Christ uh, was born, um, the prophet Jeremiah... He wrote in chapter 29, and this is the same God that loves you today. Here's what Jeremiah said, verse 11 of chapter 29. He said, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, uh, plans to give you hope and a future. He knows the plans that he has for you. Why does he know the plans? Because they're his plans, and they're good plans, and they're, and they're plans for hope, and they're plans for a future. And in Christ, in Christ, these plans begin to be fulfilled, right? So the Lord, through Paul's pen in Ephesians 1 and 2, he paints this, this glorious image of the masterpiece that you and I as believers are in Christ. And I walk myself through chapters 1 and 2 um, Tuesday, really 
kind of because of a scene from the movie Overcomer. I walked myself through those two chapters, and, I, and as I was reading, I wrote down everything that I could find in chapters 1 and 2 that God says about me, and, I wanna, uh, and, and that he says about you as a believer. And I, wanna, I just want to give you those things, and I will do it quick, and I think they're up on the screen. There they are, if you can read my chicken scratch. We are, you are, you are chosen, adopted, redeemed. We're forgiven. We have an, an inheritance. We're sealed. We're greatly loved. In chapter 2, we are made alive. Where we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, we're made alive in Christ. We're saved. We've been raised up. We're his workmanship. We have hope. We're reconciled. We have access to the Father, and we're a member of his household. Y'all back up to chapter 1 and verse 3. We started week one with this. Blessed, and here's what Paul wrote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I believe that on a very real level, those 15, I don't know what you call it, descriptors, those 15 things that God says about us, that, that's the every spiritual blessing that Paul is talking about. And so he's kind of, he's cataloging all of God's kindnesses in those first two chapters of Ephesians. And then he prays in chapter 3. He continues that prayer um, that, that God would, would make it real. To the, he says this and this and this and this. And he prays in chapter 3 that God would make it real to those people that are hearing this. And so as Paul prayed for them, he makes some really, really specific requests on their behalf. But here's what he didn't pray for, y'all. He didn't pray for anything physical or material or, or financial. He didn't pray for the healing of someone who was sick. He didn't pray that they would be delivered from some kind of persecution. He didn't pray for the economy in Asia Minor. He didn't pray for, for the health care crisis that they were going through. He didn't pray for, for some insurance problems that they were all going through. He didn't pray for any of that stuff, those physical, financial, material things, he didn't get mired down in, in much of the things that we get ourselves mired down in and that we pray for. Now, with that said, I'm not telling you that the Word doesn't tell us to pray and lift everything up to the Lord because the Word does. But it does seem like often, and I, I'm saying that I'm talking to myself now, I'm talking to the man in the mirror, that often it seems like the physical, the material, the financial stuff that occupies our brain Become, uh, begins to totally dominate our prayer life when really it should really be a spiritual thing. Really the spiritual should be at the heart of our prayers because spiritual matters are eternal. All the junk that we're going through in our worlds today, whatever it is, financial, material, whatever it is, it, those aren't eternal things. And so our focus at the heart should be spiritual issues. When Paul prayed for the Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1, ending in, in, in where we are today. It is a 1,000% spiritual. And so today, I want us to look at the heart of Paul's prayer in these verses, and I want us to look at what Paul prays for for them in these verses. I want us to look at the appeals that he's making. I want us to look at, 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 at the petitions that he is making. And he, does, he makes about three, three or four. The first one is this. He prays 
for their spiritual power. And from a, from a timelessness perspective, that prayer is for believers today as well, obviously. But in context, he is praying for their spiritual power. Look at verse 16. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he, he the Lord, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the first thing that Paul asked the Father for regards these folks' spiritual power or their strength. And that word power comes from the Greek word that we get English words dynamite or or dynamo. And it means an inherent power. It means the power that resides um, within something, the the inherent sort of intrinsic uh, power. But it doesn't mean that me and you possess that spiritual power in and of ourselves. It does mean, though, that, that when we are in a relationship with the Lord, we've been empowered. It's not of ourselves, but when we're in a relationship with Him, He empowers us. In this passage, the, in this verse particularly, it's speaking of the, um, of the strength of God in our inner being that enables a believer like me and like you to live for the Lord. That's the strength and the power he's talking about. And I think there's three things about this spiritual power that Paul writes. Number one, he talks about the location. And if you've got a worship guide, if you don't have a worship guide, raise your hand and let us get you one. But these are a few fill-in-the-blanks in there. So the first thing he says about this power, this spiritual power, is the location of it. Where is it? Where is this power? And Paul says that this power... He prays that it might be revealed in our inner being. He's talking about, y'all, what is inside of you. It's not some physical thing. It is, it is an inside thing. It's your inner being. That's where our emotions live. That's where our motivations live. That's where we get motives from. It's where our will is. It's where all of our, our thoughts are. And everything, everything that we do in life results from decisions that are made in our inner being. When our inner being is weak, when it's weak, you're subject to being controlled by the power of your flesh, by the, the, the sinful desires of your flesh. And Paul talked about that as well in chapter 1 and 2. It is the weakness that is inside of us that causes us to react in, in anger or to gossip or to cuss or to steal or to lie or to any number of sins. It's the weakness in our inner being that causes that. When we're saved, when we're saved, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, when we're saved, we are made partakers of the divine nature. And that's the vantage point that Paul is talking about. That's the vantage point. That's the place where the Holy Spirit will, will transform us into the image of Christ. As our inner beings, as, our, as what's inside of us is plugged in, and is fed the Word of God. Three or four things. As we're plugged into Him and we're fed the Word of God, the Scripture, as we're engaged in prayer, we're on our knees, we're spending a lot of time on our knees. As we encounter God through preaching the Word, through, through worship, as we do all of those things, our inner being is being strengthened with power. And so number one is the location of this power. Number two is this the abundance of this power. So Paul prays that their spiritual power and yours, that it be according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. 
He's praying that God would bless them according to his spiritual wealth. And you think about it, that is an amazing, amazing request. Think about a billionaire that gives like $1,000 to some cause. He's giving out of his wealth. If that same billionaire gave $100 million to that cause, he'd be giving according to his wealth. Y'all get that? There's a difference in giving out of and giving according to. And Paul is praying that the Lord would, would give believers spiritual power that flows out of really a limitless resource, God's vast limitless resources. And those resources, the Lord's resources, they became mine on the day that I got saved. They became yours or will become yours on the day that you either were saved or will be saved. The day that we trusted Christ as our Savior. This phrase, the riches of His glory, that's really talking about all of what makes God God, all of the spiritual attributes and the abilities that belong to Him because just really of who He is. So when He came to live in your heart, He brought with Him the fullness of His presence. He brought with Him the fullness of His power. And Paul's prayer is for these Ephesian believers that they would be able to, and this prayer is for you and me, that we would be able to experience the full benefits of the relationship that we have with Him. Sadly, I would tell you this, that most of us live our lives, we walk through our life like spiritual paupers, like spiritual poor folks, because in fact, if we're really saved, then we already possess these limitless resources from the Lord. If He is really living inside of us, Look, we're not hurting for power. If you are a believer, you are not hurting for power. If it looks like or if it feels like you are, it's because we're, we're, we're actually failing to take by faith the things that God has given us. The lack of these things are probably there because you or I are more concerned with the physical than we are with the spiritual. His power and His glory, they know no limit. And, and, and write this down. Our access to those things. Our access to His power and His glory is only limited by our willingness or our unwillingness to submit to, to submit and be plugged into Him. Do y'all get that? Our access, it's there, but our access is limited if, if or, or it's denied if we're unwilling to plug into Him. So number one is the abundance of the power. And then number three is this, the function of the power. Paul prays that that the inner being might be strengthened with power through His Spirit. The power of God in our lives, it can only come from one place, and that place is the Holy Spirit. When He comes into our life, He comes in with power. You'll see on the screen, um, flip to the next slide. You'll see, that's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's the piv- I found this in my Bible uh, Thursday. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is really, and I wrote up there, I think, yeah, the pivotal verse of the New Testament. And when I, at some point in the last few years, I wrote um, Ephesians 3.16 there, which cracked me up because you don't never necessarily put Acts 1.8 in Ephesians 3.16, but it's the power. In Acts 1.8, what does it say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that is what, what Paul is talking about. It's that it's the, he, when he comes into our lives, he comes with power. And so here's what we need to remember. Ephesians chapter 2, 
says the inner being of a lost person is dead, dead in the trespasses, dead in the sins, but he makes us alive when Christ comes in as Savior and Lord. When somebody is saved, the inner being is brought to life and is made a new creation throughout Paul's writing. He calls you and I a new creation. So what does it mean for the inner being to be empowered by God? It means that we're plugged into him and the switch is flipped. Now, there may be a dimmer switch on the right side of that little flipper, and that dimmer switch may, may be kind of low, but as we grow and we're in the Word and we're listening, to, we're listening to the preaching of the Word and we're worshiping and we're on our knees praying, that dimmer switch gets raised up. What happens to a light as the dimmer switch moves up? The light gets brighter. So as soon as you're saved, that dimmer switch may be kind of low, may be kind of high. We never know. But as we grow, that dimmer switch is moving up. And so what does this mean? It means that as our spirit, as we become more and more under the complete control of the Holy Spirit, our inner being is transformed. We, go, we grow stronger and, and we're more able to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Let me give you another example. Let's say that, uh, that you go to Daniel Appliance. Daniel Appliance is a great uh, locally owned appliance store and you're looking for a top-of-the-line refrigerator, and you find a Viking built-in, side-by-side, super-sweet refrigerator. And I'm talking about a $10,000 refrigerator, serious refrigerator. You can control it from your phone. Matter of fact, from your phone, you can have the refrigerator open its own door and go get a glass out the cabinet and pour you some sweet tea. I mean, this you push a couple of buttons, and it's making you a BLT. I'm talking about a sweet refrigerator, right? So you decide to buy it. And because you spent so much money, they're going to deliver that refrigerator to you really immediately. And so you hop in the car and you're heading home and the delivery truck's going to be there in an hour or so, right? But you stop at Publix and you want to get a bunch of food and load up on food to put in your new sweet Viking side-by-side built-in refrigerator. And so you get home and the, and the delivery people, they pull up and they bring that refrigerator in and they, they put that refrigerator in place and you are looking at it and it is sweet and, and you're feeling really good about it, right? And you wake up the next morning and you go in there to fix yourself some bacon and eggs and grits and sausage and you discover something that just really busts your bubble. I'm sorry I used the word fix. I'm not supposed to say you fix. You fix your car and I'm saying you fix bacon and eggs. But you discover something in there and it busts your bubble, right? You, 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 you open up the refrigerator and the milk is kind of turned sour and the ice cream is melted and run all over the bottom of the fridge and the broccoli's kind of turning colors and it's obvious that this thing don't work and you're thinking I spent $10,000 on this refrigerator and truth is you're ticked and so you call the dude at Daniel and you're going to give him a piece of your Christian mind on the phone when he answers that phone right and, and so the guy answers the phone and you say to him I bought this refrigerator yesterday for $10,000 and it don't even work and he, he's a sweet guy. And he apologizes to you on the phone. And he said, listen, do me a favor. Go to that refrigerator and bend down and listen at the bottom. See if you hear the hum of the motor. And you say, hold on a minute. And you, you go over and you listen and there's nothing. And you go back to the phone and you say, nothing. He says, go over, open the freezer up, see if the light comes on. You say, hold on a second. And you go over and you open it up and you get nothing. You get back on the phone and you say, dude, I got nothing. And he says, look around in the back of the refrigerator and tell me if it's plugged in. And you look, and surprise, surprise, it ain't plugged in. And so you come back over to the phone, 
and you say to him, I looked and I saw the cord and it's not plugged in, but for $10,000, it shouldn't even have to be plugged in. I ought to just work on general principle, right? But then he explains something that is so wise to you. Here's what he says to you. He says, sir, you got this expensive, brand-new Viking refrigerator, and this brand-new, expensive Viking refrigerator has all the manufactured specifications to do and to be all that it was designed to be, but not without power. It's got all the parts, right? But the parts don't work without power. Just having the parts as expensive and as precious as the parts are won't allow the parts to do and be what the parts are designed to do and be unless they're connected to a power source. And so it is with me and you, y'all. So the first thing Paul prays for them is for spiritual power. And then number two, he prays for them for spiritual passion, their spiritual passion. Look at verse 17. Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now Paul turns from praying for spiritual power to praying for spiritual passion. His prayer is for these Ephesian Christians to be filled with the love of God that manifests itself in a love for God and for other people. Here's how he prayed for their spiritual love lives. Number one, he he talks about the source of the passion. What is the source of this passion that he's talking about? He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Sounds like salvation thing, but it's not a salvation thing. He's not praying for them to get saved because they're already saved. He's writing to believers right now. Because when a sinner um, is saved, the Lord takes up residence in their heart via the Holy Spirit. And this word dwell, this word dwell means to settle down or to make yourself at home. It's like this idea of someone being comfortable in a home. They sit down in front of the fireplace. That's what the word dwell means. The idea here for Paul and for us is, is that Christ won't be comfortable in the, house of your, in the house of your hearts until it's controlled and you're controlled by His Spirit. Now, He lives in our hearts from the very moment of salvation, the very moment that you are justified before a holy God. But He won't be at home in your heart until the Holy Spirit can control that heart. I want you to picture your Christian life. Picture your Christian heart. Picture your, your Christian inner being as a house. And Jesus is going from room to room of the house. In the library, there's a study, which is your mind. He walks in there and he finds some trash. He looks on the shelves and he finds some trashy books. He sees some trashy magazines or whatever he may... It's a bunch of worthless stuff he sees. And he starts throwing that out. He said, no, that book don't need to be here. He throws that book out. But he replaces everything with his word. And then he goes downstairs and he looks into the, into the dining room, where, which is where the appetite plays itself out, right? That's where, where you satisfy hunger in the dining room. So Jesus goes in that dining room and he finds a bunch of sinful desires in the dining room. He finds this menu. Well, the menu is from, from the world. It's from the culture. It's from society. And in the place of things 
that, that you hunger for, things that we thirst for like status and materialism and lust, he throws that out and he puts in things like meekness and gentleness and humility and love. And then he walks into the living room uh, across from the dining room, the living room of, of fellowship or the living room of friendship. And he sees all these worldly companions and activities that are going on. And then he goes in the closet. And in the closet is where all your hidden sins are kept. And he goes on and on through every room right in the house. And then when he has cleaned up every room, every nook, every little cranny. I don't know. You all know what a cranny is? I don't know what a cranny is. He, he finds in every room in your house. And he's cleaned all those things up. And he's gotten rid of the sin. And he's gotten rid of all the foolishness. Only then can he settle in in front of the fireplace, right? Only then he can settle in and be at home. And so to have Jesus dwell in our hearts through faith means for him to be right at home in every single corner of our life. Every single room in our life, we've relinquished control to him. And then he can chill by the fireplace. So I'm going to ask you, consider the house of your heart today. Christ may live there, but is he chilling by the fireplace? So number one is the source, the source of the passion. Number two is the reality of the passion. Paul continues in his prayer, and he asks that they be rooted and grounded in love. It's like putting down um, roots like the roots of a tree. It's like they, they, they form this firm foundation for the tree. And so he's praying for their maturity in Christ. He's praying that the dimmer switch get moved up a little bit. You see, y'all, the evidence, the evidence that your life or any life or my life, the evidence that it's under control of the Holy Spirit is the presence of authentic, genuine, real love. When a person is saved, and I'm talking about sure enough, saved, heart transplant. Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God is poured into their hearts, right? The, the love plays itself out in, in, in love for God and for others. Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 34, he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then in 1 Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. When the Spirit of God, when the Holy Spirit controls us and we're walking in His power, we will prove that by the way we love Him and love others. Many years ago, middle of the, uh, the 1900s, uh, a, a preacher named Donald Gray Barnhouse who also... Uh, wrote some commentaries, he said this. He said, love, y'all have heard of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Barnhouse said that, the, that love is central to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 verse 22. He said, love is the key. I love the way he wrote this. He said, joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Patience is love enduring. He said, kindness is love's touch. Gentleness loves character. Faithfulness loves habit. He said gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding back the reins, he said. In other words, think about this now. This is convicting. He said in the absence of love, there can be no fruit of the Spirit and therefore no evidence of the presence 
of the Lord. Paul is reminding us that love for the Lord and for others is central. It is the core, it is the foundation of our experience as a believer. There is no such thing as a loveless Christian. There's, there's not. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Now, the fruit and the love may be not about that big, but if you're no different on this side of salvation than you are on this side, like, what's the deal? You got, there has to be a difference. And the dimmer switch may be kind of low, but over time, through the different things we're talking about, that dimmer switch gets raised up. The believer, he also says this, look, the believer who claims to love God but who hates his brother, the word says he's a liar. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Verse 20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. But when we submit our lives, when we submit our lives to Christ in in humble obedience, we are empowered to love as he loves. We can't love as he loves if he doesn't live inside of us. And God wants us rooted and grounded in his love and built up by loving others and to be built up by others loving us. And that's Paul's prayer for the church. And it's still the Lord's will for the church now. So how's your love life? I would ask you that. How is your love life? So the big point number two is this, the reality of this passion. And number three is, is this, the result of this passion. When we're rooted and when we're grounded in the love of God, verses 8 and 19 tell us this, we'll be in a position to, in verse 18, to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The strengthening of our inner being, y'all, by the Holy Spirit allows us to let Christ be super at home in the rooms of our heart. And letting Christ be at home in all the rooms of our heart allows us to begin to know the ginormous scale of Christ's love. So Christ's love is, is, is as wide as, in, as infinity and it is as, as long as eternity and it is as higher than the, than the stars and it is deeper than the deepest oceans. Every single one of you that has said yes to the Lord's offer is a new creation. Every one of you have been given a new identity, and that identity is as a chosen, adopted child of God. Y'all, the river of the Father's love, the, the ocean of His love, it hasn't just been placed near your heart. It hasn't just been placed like around you. As we speak this morning, the Bible tells us it has been poured into you through the Holy Spirit, and it's unconditional. It's unconditional. It's given freely and it's given willingly. And I guarantee you, I know that I know there's plenty of you sitting out there listening to this that don't buy into that. You can't let yourself buy into unconditional love. Probably because you never felt unconditional love. Probably unconditional love has never been modeled anywhere in your life. And so it's difficult to get your arms around it. But the reality is this, that in Christ... You are unconditionally loved. You're not just simply loved. You're not even simply greatly loved, as Paul said in chapter 2. He says you're given a new title. And that new title is not as a drunk or an addict or a jerk or a Pharisee or a hypocrite or a what? Fill the blank in. He says the new identity is beloved. 
the God of the universe tells you that you are, you, your new title is that you are beloved. And so if you walk around, and we all can do this from time to time, feeling unloved as his child, it's because you may be walking around in the way that you once walked around when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You may be walking around in the way that the world walked around, right? That may be happening. The ways of the world may be speaking louder to your heart than God's love is speaking to your heart. If you're feeling unloved, it's not because you're not loved. Let me say that again. If you're feeling unloved as a believer, it is not because you're not loved. It's because you're not believing by faith and receiving from Him the love that He is just pouring into you. He is loving whether we're in sync with that or not. Our in syncness with it does not affect His love. I'm not that important that my being out of sync with God is going to affect His love, right? The witness of, of the Scripture is overwhelming. i give you three or four. From a couple of weeks ago, uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, says, God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. Romans 5, verse 8 says, God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 9 says, Those who were not my people, those who were not my people, He said, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. The God that that those, y'all, and dozens and dozens and dozens of other verses speak about, That's the heart of your heavenly Father. It is His identity. It is who He is. And He is the one that wants you to know how deep and how wide and how long and how high His love is. He's the one that wants you rooted and grounded in love. You've been chosen and adopted by a heavenly Father who loves you wide and loves you long and loves you deeper than the deepest ocean and higher than the stars, like a love, that's a love that, that you will never, ever experience in any other way. And it is because he is just, very simply, it's just exactly who he is. So number one, Paul's praying for their spiritual power. Number two, he's praying um, for their spiritual passion. And finally, he is pr- praying for their spiritual prosperity. And I shudder to use the word prosperity in the, in the world that we live in today because your mind immediately goes to that and that is not at all not at all what I'm talking about nothing to do with money or material wealth or anything Paul's final petition uh, for these Ephesian believers verse 19 is that they may be filled with the fullness of God that is a remarkable request because how can the finite the finite hold the infinite How can something so small contain someone who fills all things? Imagine that you're down in Panama City. Better said, imagine you're in Hawaii. You're on the beach. Hawaii's better than Panama City. You're on the beaches of Maui, and you got this bucket. You got this bucket. You even got yourself a little shovel, and you're standing uh, knee-deep in the surf, and in front of you is the 
absurd vastness of the Pacific Ocean, right? You look north and you look south and you look east and you look west. You see nothing but the, the, the vast infiniteness of this ocean. The waves are crashing and the power in the ocean, this, this, as far as you can see, this unending vista of water. And you're nothing but a little insignificant speck on the seashore compared to all that vast ocean, right? Now, imagine that, uh, that you dip this gallon bucket. You got this gallon bucket and you, and you dip this gallon bucket into the ocean. This vast, as far as you can see, Pacific Ocean. Immediately, it would be filled with all the, 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 the power of, and the fullness of that ocean. Of course, this little bucket could not contain all the fullness of the ocean. But it would still be filled with the fullness of the ocean. That is how it is with Christ and His church. We dip the puny buckets of our lives into the vast oceans of His glory and we're just instantly filled with Him. And I know that this bucket, it can't contain all that He is. That would be absurd. But I also know that if I'm receptive to, to His power and to His glory and to His grace and to His mercy, I'll be able to hold even more of Him. Paul is praying for these people, and he's praying for you, that you may know all that you can know of the fullness of the Lord. He wants them and you to be buckets that are filled with the Lord's power and His presence and His love and His glory. And that just ain't going to happen unless we humbly submit to Him and allow Him to pour Himself in. And to pour Himself in until we are filled with nothing but Him. And by the way, as a little aside, which is really not that little of an aside, to be filled with Him implies that we become empty of ourselves. It's like we have the dimmer switch on the right, that as that dimmer switch is moving up and the light is getting brighter and we're being filled more and more with Him, the dimmer switch on the left, which is me and my own uh, self-centeredness, is moving down and the light of me being selfish is getting less and less as he becomes more and more. Does that make sense? I hope it does. The word filled means to be full. It means to be filled up to the fullest. And it speaks of, of total domination, which sounds like a crazy word for me to use, but here's the reality. The person that is filled with, with anger is dominated by hate. The person that is filled with wicked desires is dominated by lust. The person that is filled with happiness is dominated by joy. So to be filled with the fullness of God is to be dominated by Him. Instead of thinking of our lives maybe as just a little yellow bucket that can only hold a little bit maybe of His fullness, think of yourself as a ship that's been sunk out in, the, in His oceans of grace until you're completely filled with all that He is and that He can give you. You're a ship that's dominated by the sea of His glory and you're driven about by the waves of His will and you're carried by the whims of His desires, not your desires, His desires, where we're, 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 we're His and there's no room anywhere in any room in our life for anything but Him. That's what He's after. And He won't rest until He controls our lives to the fullest. The longer that you and I strive to be in control, and we will arm wrestle the Lord every day 
because it's all about me, it's all about me, and I will wrestle with him for control. But the longer that we strive to maintain that control, the harder that he will fight for us. And it's only when we can really submit to him fully that he can fill us with all that he is. Look, man, he is not after any more fans. He has got enough fans. He is looking for fully devoted followers. People that will allow him to to pour himself into them and be a fully devoted follower. When we can embrace and tap into that spiritual power that he's given us, when when we allow him to be at, at home in every aspect of our life, in every room in our hearts, and finally when we can grab a hold of the bucket of his power and his grace and his love and his mercy, when we can finally do that, then we really can begin to understand who we are in Christ, that we are chosen and that we are adopted and that we are a beloved child of God. Y'all, that is what he wants for us. The world is telling you that you're this and that and the other thing, but it is who he says we are. It's who he says we are. And if you have not said yes to that, and if you've not allowed him to do that, and I know Paul's talking to Ephesian believers here, but I know that there's people in this room that haven't said yes. He's not living in your heart today, but he wants to live in your heart. He's chosen you, and he wants to adopt you, and he wants to call you beloved, and he wants to fill you up with his fullness. And if that is you today, look, it is not this crazy, big, complicated thing. All it is is an admission that I'm in need. An admission at the foot of His cross that I am in need to be saved. And I'm a sinner. And I repent of that sin and I believe. What do I believe? I believe that that cross took care of it. And so if that's you today, I want, you, I want us all to... to, to bow our heads, close our eyes.